going to Mark chapter 4. When Jesus started his ministry, the people in Israel, when he came, they were waiting for a king to come. Uh, They were under Rome's thumb. They had, in the past, had their glory days. They had freedom in the past. They had power in the past. At one point, they were the world's superpower. And people would come from all over the world to go to Jerusalem and to hear wisdom from God's people and from God's word and to see what it looks like when God's people apply his word to their lives and um, and, and what that brings to a kingdom. And so they, at one point, had this star that was shining, and they had these great kings like King David, who went out and did battle and subdued their enemies. They had King Solomon, who was a king who increased their wealth and increased their peace and increased their wisdom and their stature in the world. But all of that had faded, and they were now occupied by Rome. They lost their power, they lost their prominence, they lost their place in the world, and now there was this foreign country that was occupying them, and the whole culture around them was shaping. They were losing a big part of who they were. You know, this would be similar to us if you know, the, the U.S. loses its power and we lose our stature in the world and then we get invaded by Canada. And all of a sudden the culture starts to change and everybody's watching curling and, and speaking, speaking a weird form of French. And, and we would be sitting around saying, Lord, when are you going to rescue us? Um, this is... We'd remember the times when, when we were free. We'd remember all those things that made us Americans. We would think back and say, man, remember Thanksgiving. Do you remember the 4th of July? Do you remember when we had our own power, we had our own freedom? Do you remember how good it was? Do you remember all of those great American things that now just seem like they're gone because we're ruled by Canada? That's, those are the conversations that we'd be having. There would be this longing to overthrow the, the ruling Canadians so that we could have our power again and so we could have our stature again. That was even more intense with these Jews, with the Israelites in their day. They wanted the kingdom of God to come back. Remember, their kingdom wasn't just a kingdom established by people. Theirs was a kingdom that was established by God himself. He had called them out of where they were. He had given them the land. He had raised up the leaders. He had given them his word. And he had given them all these great promises of what their kingdom would be in the future. And now here they were under Rome's thumb. They didn't have any of those things. And they were longing for that kingdom to come. And they wanted a quick fix. They wanted a quick overthrow. They wanted to have a powerful kingdom again where they had an army, they had money, they had strength, where they pushed out all of those enemies who were wrecking their lives. Now, when Jesus came, He goes out in the wilderness, he's tempted, he passes the tests, and then after he comes out of the wilderness, some of the first words we hear Jesus saying are these. In Mark 1, 15, he said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. So Jesus, when he first comes, the first things he's saying publicly are that the kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is here. It's, it's back. The kingdom's coming. And so people are celebrating. They're thinking, yes, finally, we're going to have our king. We're going to have our prominence again. We're going to have our rule again. Uh, in Luke, Jesus said that announcing the coming of that kingdom was the reason that he was sent. He said in Luke 4.43, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So immediately in everybody's minds, they're thinking, this is it. We're going to get our kingdom back. We're going to get the new David. We're going to have our rule from Jerusalem. And then on the one hand, Jesus looks exactly like they expected the Messiah to look because he was healing lepers. He was healing the blind. He was healing the deaf. He was casting out demons. And those were all things that were predicted in the Old Testament when the Messiah came. But then on the other hand, time and time again, people tried to make Jesus king by force. And he kept refusing. 
He, he didn't allow them to, to take out their swords and fight for him. He didn't allow them to advance the kingdom the way that they expected it to advance. They wanted the kingdom to come, and Jesus said that the kingdom had come, but he had to blow up their expectations of what it would be like when the kingdom actually does come. Because he was the king. He is the king, and he does bring the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God, in its truest form, is not what everybody expected. It's not what everybody was hoping for. And so in Mark chapter 4, Jesus starts blowing up some of these false expectations. And these people needed it because they expected quick results in a different kind of kingdom. But we need it too. Because pretty often we get into our walks with Jesus and we don't know what it's going to be like for him to rule and reign over us. We expect quick results. We figure by the time I've been a Christian for 10 years, I'll be Billy Graham at that point. Um, He's going to change me, transform me. He's going to give me nothing but fruitfulness and and the advancement of the gospel in in my life around me. I'll change. My home will change. My kids will change. My small group will change. my, My church will change. My community will change. That's what it's going to be like when the kingdom of God comes for me. And if we have expectations that aren't accurate, then we can find ourselves pretty disillusioned. You know, uh, when we do pre-marriage counseling around here, and we do an awful lot of it, um, saw two more engagements this week, um, and uh, another, we had another wedding yesterday where Jay Brees and Mary Del Mastro got married, so, so it's an exciting place to be if you're young. Um, if you're single, buckle up. It's not lasting long around here. Um, <laughs> don't drink the coffee. But, um, so, so we'll do a lot of pre-marriage counseling, and a big part of pre-marriage counseling is scaring people. Like it's it's saying, oh, you're going to get married and everything's going to be awesome and you're going to ride off into the sunset and everything's going to be great and it's going to be romance and fun from here on out. And a big part of what we do is say, oh no, buckle up, man. It's going to be rough. Um, You may have that year where everything's awesome and it's nonstop romance, but there's going to come this point where it crashes and where it's not what you expected it to be all the time, where you'll have those great moments and you'll have that great excitement. But if you really expect that that's what's going to happen all the time, then you're going to be sorely disappointed and very disillusioned. And we'll talk to a lot of people who a year into marriage are saying, man, I think I married the wrong person because it's not what I expected. So having the right expectations really does shape the way that we exist in a relationship. And so, so let's jump into Mark chapter 4 where Jesus tells us what to expect when he reigns over us. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, thank you that it clears away the fog, uh, that it lifts the, the questions that we have, and it shows us what's real. Uh, Jesus, as we read your word, you just consistently ring true to us. We, we see how real you are, how true you are. We thank you that you don't lie, you don't spin things. And we pray as we look at your word that we would hear the truth that's there and that it would prepare us to live as part of your kingdom with the right expectations and where we see the real power of the kingdom growing in us and in our city. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So he's clearing up expectations. Mark four twenty six. it says, And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now, when we see a parable like this, we don't want to get too bogged down in the details. Uh, Sometimes we can get led astray a little bit if we focus too much on a detail that wasn't the focus of one of these parables. Um, In in some of these parables where Jesus tells stories, they're some of the most misapplied passages of Scripture because people will focus on a detail and make that parable say something altogether different than it was intended to say. Uh, This week we were watching a movie with our family, and uh, Sophie, our six-year-old, just got fixated on the fact that one of the main characters, this girl, was uh, wearing a shirt that looked itchy. 
And so, so immediately, Sophie's picking up on it, going, man, that shirt looks itchy. And then uh, later on, and the plot had nothing to do with that shirt. This wasn't like the, the saga of the itchy shirt. It, it was just, it was the clothes she was wearing. And then a few minutes into the movie, this girl starts crying, and Sophie's immediately going, is she crying because her shirt's itchy? Where, um, just, just so distracted by that one detail that you missed the entire plot. And... Um, and what we tend to do with these parables is we get so distracted by some of the details or, or we're so good at misapplying them that we actually miss what they're trying to say. Um, Jesus here in this parable is not telling us, for example, what farming is actually like. If, if he were, this would be almost an insult to a farmer because he says the guy goes out and he throws some seed and then he basically goes to sleep. And then, you know, five months later, he wakes up and goes out and, and picks it. And, and so if a farmer would hear that, farmers who are some of the har- hardest working people you'd ever meet, they would say, no, that's, that's nothing like what it's like. Yeah, yeah, I scatter that seed, but then I have to fertilize it. Then I have to weed it. I have to water it. I have a million other things to do on the farm. The work is never done. That's not at all what farming is. And so if we were to say, here, Jesus is teaching us something about agriculture, he's not. He's using ag- agriculture to teach us about something else. There's a bigger message here. And so to say, well, a farmer basically works one or two weeks a year would be a total misapplication of this parable. And there are millions of misapplications of the parables. I know um, as a pastor, I'll get the joke pretty often like this. So you basically just work one day a week joke. And, um, and everyone who tells it thinks they're the first one to tell it. So they think it's funny. And, so, um, and I'm pretty easygoing. So, so I can laugh along with it. But I know some pastors who blow up. Where, where someone says that and they say, oh, you think I work one day a week? Let me tell you. And then immediately, here it comes. Here comes my schedule. Here comes the counseling. And my day off was Thursday and someone died. So know what I did on my day off? A funeral and counseling. And so, so well, it's all right, man. I, I was kidding. So, um, so feel free to tell that joke if you think it's funny. But um, in this case, <laughs> the, uh, I'll laugh with you. But the... Um, But Jesus here is not saying this is what a farmer is like. In fact, what he's doing here is he's drawing attention to the power of the seed that the farmer planted. Notice a few different things that he says. First of all, he says it's not the farmer's effort that causes the seed to grow. Because all he does is scatter it and then go to sleep. Secondly, it's not this farmer's knowledge that causes the seed to grow. Because it says that it grows and he doesn't know how it grows. (laughs) He just throws it in the ground and next thing you know, it sprouts up and it's a harvest. It's not the the farmer's superior farming techniques because in verse 28, he says that the earth produces, and the word he uses is automate, which is automatically, that it happens all by itself. So what he's drawing attention to here is that the farmer is not the hero of this story, the seed is. And the seed is the real power for the growth of God's kingdom. Now remember, in the passage that Michael walked through last week, Jesus gave us the answer key for what these parables are about. And he says in verse 14 that the farmer sows the word. So the seed represents the word of God. And Jesus is saying that the way that the kingdom of God advances in our worlds and in our lives, in our hearts, in our homes, is through the sowing of God's word and then the power that's in God's word to produce on its own, to produce automatically. Now, this is a very different kingdom than these people were expecting because remember, the, the kingdom in Rome advanced with military might. They advanced with power. They advanced with coercion. They advanced by having a strong king who was almost worshiped as God. That's how power advanced there. Jesus said in his kingdom, it's not going to be the same way. The power of his kingdom is going to be the story, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, the word of God, the message that we have, not our force, not our army, not our money, not how influential we are in our personality, 
but the power of the word of God. That's where the power of God's reign over us individually and God's power to change our community really is. It's in the message. So this is why as Christians, we're devoted to reading our Bibles and reading them day after day. And sometimes we can get discouraged because we don't necessarily remember what it was that we read this morning um, or or what we read all week this week. We know that we read a little bit, but it just doesn't seem like I I even know what it was. Or or I'll preach a sermon, and I know that by the time the game's over today, you will have forgotten a lot of what was said. Um, I know that I'll go home, and you know, tomorrow morning, if someone says, what was the sermon about yesterday, it'll take me a second to, to think back and try to remember even the points that I was making. And so... What Jesus is saying here is that those things can happen. There, there'll be times where the seed goes under the ground. You don't see it producing anything. You don't know what it's doing. You don't know how it's doing its work. But the promise is that it does its work. That the word of God works on us, not like plastic surgery, but it works on us like food works on our body. If you go in for plastic surgery, the results are pretty instantaneous. I mean, you come out changed, something is different about you now, you heal up and you're better. It happened in an instant and there were results. You went home that day, changed from where you were that morning. Sometimes God's word works on us that way and changes us instantly, but more often than not, it changes us like food changes us, where we just keep eating and eventually over time, that food makes an impact and changes our bodies. Now, the truth is most of us can't really remember all the meals that we've eaten. In fact, I can't remember more than five or ten meals that I've had in my lifetime. I mean, I'll remember people that I ate with or places that I ate, but I don't remember what the food was. Um, I, I remember the first time I had Cincinnati chili because it's glorious and, and wonderful, and I'd never tasted anything like that before. I remember the first time I had sushi because it's terrible. Um, like there, there are a few different things that just that stick, stick out in those meals, But for the most part, I don't remember what the meals were. In fact, even this week, I can tell you what I ate on Thursday, but the rest of the week, obviously it's turkey right now, but um, before that, I don't know what it was. And as I look back over my life, I can remember maybe five or ten different meals what I ate, but then all the other ones I can't remember. But that doesn't mean that it's only those five or ten meals that made an impact on me. In fact, all of the meals, obviously. Have, have piled up and made an impact. And over time, the cumulative effect of eating meals, even if I don't remember what those meals are, but I just continually expose my body to food, the more that I do that, the more that it nourishes me, changes me, and, and fattens me. It does its work. And the word of God is like that too. Uh, there will be maybe some weeks where you really remember something from the sermon. Or maybe you look back at your years going to church and you remember that one thing that was said. But for the most part, you don't. For the most part, you don't remember all the specifics. I remember the, the guy who led me to Christ in Orchard Park, New York, growing up as a little kid. I remember spending time with him my junior year of high school almost every single day. He just spent time with me, pouring his life into my life, teaching me the word of God. I don't remember a single lesson. But I know that those were years exposed to the word of God left and right, and it absolutely changed my life. So we should be encouraged that the way that God works is through the message of his word. The way that he works is through the story, the gospel story of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And it looks foolish. It doesn't look powerful. We won't even realize that the word is doing its work, but it does its work and it changes things. If you look back over history, there's been no weapon that's been as effective at changing the world as the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ has been. 
You know, St. Patrick, he went into Ireland. And when he got to Ireland, he found a people there that were pagan people. Uh, They were people who just lived like pagans. There were a bunch of villages that were disconnected with not a lot of infrastructure and no no roads that connected them. The people who were there, the guys were known for being warriors, and they would go into a battle naked, covered in mud, eating raw meat, and then charging out to battle screaming. Those are the people that he went to reach. And Patrick shows up. He doesn't have a weapon. He just goes in and says, hey, guys, story time. (laughs) Yes. You guys want to come over and sing Jesus Loves Me around a campfire? And, um, and, and here are all these people who he has no chance of reaching because they would never listen to a guy whose only weapon is a story. And what ended up happening is half the island came to faith in Christ as a result of Patrick's work and the work of the people who went with him. You go there today and there are towns that have church in the name all over the place because the gospel made a huge impact there and the light of the gospel shined longer in Ireland than it did in many of the places that were reached by Christ. The power wasn't in St. Patrick. The power wasn't in the methods. The power was in the story that he brought, the message of Jesus Christ. And that has always been where the power is to see our lives changed. So keep sowing the word of God into your heart. Keep sowing it into your kids. Keep sowing it into your family. Because even when you don't know how it's going to produce, even when you don't see it producing, even when it's underground and putting out its roots and you don't see results above ground, just keep sowing. Keep going because there is power there. And then the promise is that it does grow. Look at verse 30. As he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. So here he's saying that the kingdom of God, when it's sown into a heart, a life, a community, it has a very small start. It's a real small seed like a mustard seed, but then grows into one of the largest bushes that has effect where the birds come and take nest in its shade. Now we have the advantage of Christianity has been around for 2,000 years. So we can see some of the ways that the message of the gospel has influenced the world. We know that there are churches on every continent now. There are churches in every country now. The the message of the gospel is out there. It's all over the place. It's prominent. It's influential. Uh, We know that you can go to any city in America and somewhere you'll find a statue of Jesus or of one of his apostles. So we see the influence. We see the prominence. But there's no way you would have seen that when you were looking at the beginning of this kingdom with just Jesus and his 12 guys. I mean, they were expecting, remember, power, rule, money, something comparable to Rome, to boot Rome out. But these guys had nothing. They had this teacher, Jesus, but then he died when he was 33. And then even after he rose from the dead, he still didn't give them money. He still didn't give them military power. He just gave them this message. And that, in the last 2,000 years, has changed everything. But there's no way when Jesus said, here's this kingdom, the kingdom of God is here, and then you looked at his guys you would say they're going to be the ones who change the world. You know, this would be like if someone were to come to us from the future. Uh, they come from four months into the future. They come from March of 2013. And they say, let me tell you the way your next four months are going to go. And they, they give us all kinds of details. And, you know, they're wearing a big tinfoil outfit because that's what you wear when you're from the future. And then they say, and this year, this year, the Bills are going to win the Super Bowl. We would say, okay, we believed you about the time travel. And, um, and that tinfoil outfit didn't erode your credibility at all. But now, 
now you're talking crazy um, because, because we're four and six. We are third place in the AFC East. We don't have a defense. We don't have a quarterback. It's bad. Like there's, there's not a chance. If we, if we go 500, that's a successful season from this point out. So there's no way this team wins the Super Bowl. And when you looked at Jesus' team, there's no way you were going to say, these guys are going to change the world. You've got Peter, who at one point Jesus calls him Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. And that's like the franchise guy. That's the one they're building this thing around. Um, and then, then later on, Peter denies Christ when Jesus is going to the cross. They all run away from Jesus out of fear. And Jesus says, just like a mustard seed, it's going to go out, but it's going to grow into something really big and change the world. This is the kingdom of God. It didn't look like that at all. But what he's saying is that the kingdom of God comes with small beginnings, and it comes without the same kind of power all the kingdoms in the world around it have, but they do have this power that's found in the story. And then that little group of guys did change the world. When Jesus resurrected from the dead, there were about 500 Christians at that point, and they're all in Jerusalem. And so Jesus appears to them. He appears to over 500 people, and he tells them to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. He says, start in Jerusalem, then go Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so they say, this is great. We're here. We're spreading this kingdom. So we all go to Jerusalem. And they all stayed there. They disobeyed. But then still, despite the fact that they weren't good farmers, despite the fact that they weren't obedient, in the book of Acts, all of a sudden, we see 3,000 people who believe in Christ. That despite the disobedience of God's people, that little mustard seed of a kingdom started to grow. Then God sends this leader, Stephen, to get up and preach. And he preaches a pretty hard-hitting, long sermon. You think maybe that's the moment when the kingdom is catalyzed. But a bunch of people come around with rocks, and they stone him to death. Nobody stands over Stephen's corpse in the street and says, you know, this Christianity thing's going really well. Greater things have yet to come. Um, this, is, this is awesome. No, they had, we had 3,000 people, and now we have 2,999 people. One of our leaders is dead under a pile of rocks. And Jesus called this thing the kingdom. But then, by 100 AD, there were 18,000 Christians. Now, still at that point, that's a small minority in the Roman Empire. There were about 60 million people in the empire. 18,000 were Christians, which was about the same percentage as we have Amish in the United States. And nobody says the Amish are the real culture changers around here. Maybe some little pockets. But for the most part in America, we, we don't have the Amish as our big uh, shapers of culture. You never hear advertisers say something like, man, these Amish, they're so influential. If I could just get my shoes on them, all the kids would wear them. Like that's, they're not the ones that are shaping everything. Most of us are, are a little bit removed from the Amish. We don't have Amish friends. Uh, I don't have a single Amish friend on Facebook. And um, so it's, we're, so here we are. And um, I don't know, they never accept my friend request. But um, nobody would say that they're the big influencers in our society. But these Christians, they were just as small of a group in 100 AD. They were just as small, just as insignificant. But Jesus said that's how the kingdom of God grows. It starts like a little seed. Eighty years later, there were 110,000 Christians. By 250 AD, there were 2.1 million Christians. By 300 AD, there were 6 million Christians, with the empire staying about the same size because of war and disease. 312 AD, there were 9 million Christians. This is all before Christianity even became legal. I mean, most of that was the spread of the gospel under hostile rule. You know, this is one of the reasons where I believe in going out and voting. And, you know, I think it's better for Christians to have freedom than to not have freedom. But ultimately, I'm not afraid at all 
Uh, I think even if the, the spread of the gospel were outlawed in our country, that kingdom still got power. It's still going to spread. It's still going to win. Jesus has made some pretty big promises here that there's power in the seed. Then 313 AD, uh, Christianity became legal. And then in 350 AD, there were 31 million Christians, 52% of the empire. And at that point, the whole world had changed. See, that started small and started almost laughably small at times. But it's just when the world looks the darkest, when Christianity looks the weakest, when God's people look like they've failed, when it doesn't look like there's hope, those are the times that God is working to plant that little dead seed in the ground so that a great kingdom can grow out of it. So that's how it spreads in the world, and that's how it's always spread. Remember, Jesus showed us how the kingdom of God spreads. He started out, and he was just like that seed. You know, he dried up on the cross, crying out, I thirst. They buried him in the ground, and then he rose again. He became that tiny little seed that was buried and then produced a huge harvest. And then God's kingdom has spread by little deaths like that ever since. People laying down their lives, serving and loving their neighbors, and preaching this foolish message. The Bible says, by the foolishness of preaching, the world is saved, and people turn from their sin and trust Jesus, and the world's changed. Chesterton said, Christendom has had a series of revolutions, and in each one of them, Christianity has died. Christianity has died many times and risen again. For it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. That's the kingdom we're in. It's an unstoppable one. And just when it looks darkest, we can take courage that the seed has power, that it works. And it may start very small. It may start very small in your life where you start walking with Jesus and you expect all these radical changes right away and the radical changes don't all come. I mean, some things we do have those, and we'll hear the stories where people say, man, I was just a drug addict, and then I put my trust in Christ and never had desire to go back to it. That does happen, but more often than not, someone will say, I was a drug addict, I put my trust in Christ, and man, I was still craving it. And it didn't seem like it was changing my heart yet. But then after years of being exposed to the Word of God, listening to the teaching of the Word of God, being in the Bible, little by little, I was transformed by the renewing of my mind, and now I'm different. Now Jesus has changed me but it starts small. There'll be times when we look at our hearts, we look at our lives, and we say, really, is this what it's like when the creator of the universe lives inside of me? This is it? It's a little bit disappointing. And Jesus says, at those disappointing places that we should take the most courage that his kingdom's going to grow. You know, I would love as a church to be able to offer solutions that will fix all of our problems by Friday. And I think there are a lot of authors out there that do that and sell an awful lot of books, but they don't work. I mean, we, we can make some surface changes and some temporary changes, but the kind of change that's required in the depth of our heart that comes from believing the gospel, a, a real life that's really been transformed on every level by Jesus, more often than not, takes an awful lot of time, and from day to day, you don't see it working. The, the growth of God's influence in our lives is, is much more like long-term investing than it is day trading. Or day trading, you're watching the market every day and you're buying low and you're selling high and you're expecting a jump somewhere so you can sell and make your profit. The way things work in the kingdom of God is that we sow, it gets sown into our hearts, and then over time, that grows. And we live in a world where we are programmed by this technological world we live in to be very impatient, where everything has to change instantly. You know, you click on a link and it doesn't load and something's wrong. Yeah. I've been sitting here for four seconds, and, um, and nothing has changed. And so, so we get frustrated because we expect these immediate results. We expect instant access to everything. Everything should happen right away. 
But Jesus gives us these agricultural metaphors to show us what the real growth of the kingdom looks like. You know, I've never had the patience to grow a vegetable garden. I can't imagine being an apple farmer who puts seeds in the ground and says, I'll get fruit off of those in 20 years. That's, That's patience. But pretty often in our walks with God, we expect those instant results. And when they don't come, we end up being pretty disillusioned. And we say, man, is Jesus really in my heart? Like that couple getting into marriage, expecting it to be so awesome, they can very easily say, man, did I marry the wrong person? A couple years into our walk with Christ, we can be saying similar things. Is this really it? Am I really a Christian? Is this really what it's like when Jesus is in me? But Jesus says the way that the kingdom of God grows is often slow and steady, but it does grow. You know, right now, our church supports a couple of missionaries. We support Jake Persley, who lives in Istanbul, Turkey. And he's in this nation where there are 13 and a half million people in his city and 3,000 professed Christians. And he, he ministers half the time in his city. The other half the time, he loads up his car with medicine and food and clothes. And he drives out to Kurdish villages, provides medicine, food, and clothes, and preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ to villages that have not heard it in a thousand years. You know, at one point, Turkey was a cradle for Christianity. Where the churches in Revelation, they were in Turkey, but now it has dried up and it seems like it's gone away. And he's going into the, just the hardest field imaginable, where he goes and he preaches the gospel. And some of the guys who were there, owning, they owned a Christian print shop where they printed books and Bibles and tracts. Uh, they had some radical Muslims jump through the window of their store and slit their throats um, and, and kill them. That's the world that Jake's living in. And he's, he's preached the gospel and seen some people come to faith in Christ, but he's also seen some who seemed like they came to faith in Christ, but the whole time were, were lying. We're, we're making up these stories about a change that God had brought in their lives. And I know one of his closest friends who he walked with for years completely betrayed him. So he's living in this dark place where the spread of the gospel is slow. But our confidence is not that he's going to come up with some great new method for reaching the Muslims there. Our confidence is that the word of God is powerful that it does its work, and we want to support him to continue to preach it and bring it there. Uh, Also, we support Mark Pallon, who's planting his church up in Quebec. And that's an area that's very much like Western Europe, where it's post-Christian. And less than 1% of the people are professed evangelicals. We've got somewhere around 18% here. Um, And so it's it's a dark place. It seems to have moved on from Christianity. And Mark is there speaking the word of Christ to people. He's one of the first people to do it in French in a generation. French is his primary language, and, and the people he's going to, they speak French as their primary language, which is it's okay. Um, and so he goes there, and he, he preaches the gospel in this language, and they, this church has grown. This last year has been astounding. I think that 45 people come to faith in Christ, and they all got baptized in their church, which is amazing. But still, compared to the population, it's a tiny little seed. And our hope is when we get into those dark places where the the people who believe the gospel are in a very small minority, that the gospel is powerful and that it will grow, that it will do something, even though at times it looks very insignificant. It starts like that little mustard seed and then it grows. You know, this is also important for us to remember as a church. uh, We're only three years in here. Uh, and God has blessed us. We didn't expect anything like this. You know, three years ago, we moved 50 people from a basement in Henrietta to the German house, and we, we expected slow and steady growth. But we have seen nothing but explosive growth to where this fall there have been around 550 people between the two Grace Road locations in the three services, which is great and also crazy. And so we're, we're enjoying the season we're in, but it's also a very hard season we're in. And one of the things that we need to be ready for is there may be times in our future where the growth doesn't come as quickly. 
And we don't want to say that numerical growth is the only sign of God working and that's the only indicator. There may, may be some long, slow seasons with no growth or where we shrink or people move away or we face hard times. And we want to continue to trust in the old methods of sowing the word of God, of teaching the Bible, of not looking for something else, something better, of not moving beyond the gospel to try to find some new method for reaching people because the power is always in that seat. Now, there's also a temptation sometimes for us to look around at other churches around us and say, man, they just have so much more going on. You know, there's this church over there that's been there for 100 years, and they have all these people who are so much more mature than we are, <laughs> and these, these programs that are more developed. Well, man, they sowed that seed a long time ago, and it takes a long time for things to grow. So we do have something powerful in the Word of God. We have something that does produce growth in us and in our cities, but we're looking to grow something strong. We're not looking to grow some chia pet that grows real fast and then it's useless. Like we're, we're looking for, for an oak. We're looking for something strong. And we know that the way to do that can sometimes be a very hard way. But we're just going to keep following that way and stay devoted to, to the gospel as our power. Uh, for now, let's bow our heads and close our eyes, please. You know, if you're here today and, um, and you're a Christian, you've been walking with Jesus for a while. I know how temptation comes to, to say, man, the growth in my life has just been painfully slow. And then we're tempted to look elsewhere. We're tempted to push the Bible aside and look for a better message. We're tempted to push church aside and look for a better method. But what we need to do is, is repent of the ways that we are, are looking for power everywhere but in Jesus and go back to where we should be finding it in Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection in that message to continually change us and change the town around us. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we've got really good news for you. Uh, you know, maybe you've heard your whole life that the way that you get connected to God is by working really hard, uh, you know, climbing up the ladder, and then God will accept you and love you and, and let you into heaven. But the good news of Christianity, the gospel message, is that we can't work hard enough to get ourselves to God. The, the gap between us and God is far too wide. Uh, we've sinned, we've fallen short, and there's nothing we can do to fix that. But the good news is that he came to us. That Jesus Christ became that seed who dried up and died and was buried and rose again and took the death that we deserve, and then he gives us his life. So the way to heaven, the way to God, the way to become a Christian is not by doing a bunch of good things to try to keep him pleased with you, but by recognizing failure really by dying to your desire to keep a good image, dying to ego, dying to all those attempts to try to fix everything on our own, and then trusting in the Savior. So the call for us is not to, to do a lot of good things, but to turn from our sin, to turn from our unbelief, to turn from every effort to save and fix ourselves, and trust in Jesus, who will save and fix us completely. To trust in his cross and his cross alone to give us a right standing before God. And so if you're here and, and you haven't put your faith in Christ, I would encourage you to turn from sin, turn from unbelief, and turn to Jesus. Turn to his cross and receive that free gift. And he promises of all those who come to him, he won't lose one. The way to come to him is not by saying the words of any special prayer, but just deeply from your heart saying, God, I know how broken I am, how sinful I am. Jesus, I believe in your gospel. I believe in your cross. I believe that you died for me. So I turn from my sin and my unbelief and I receive you. 
And if that's the cry of your heart, he promises to save you, to cleanse you, to wash you, to make his own, make you his own. He plants this little seed of the kingdom of God in you. And the encouragement is to continually sow the word of God into your heart. Sow it into your life. Sow it into your family with the promise that there's power in the seed. But that over time will change you. It'll change your family. It'll change your neighborhood. Even in the times when you don't see what it's doing or you don't know how it's working, it does work. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus, that you taught us so much about your kingdom, about your, the way that you work in our hearts and lives. And God, it's not what we expected. But Lord, I pray you guard us against any kind of disillusionment and help us to be encouraged by the ways you have grown in us. And Lord, when we don't see the growth, we don't see the improvement, we don't see the change in our kids or in our city, I pray that we would continue to, in faith, go back to your cross, back to your word, believe it more and sow it more into the people around us in love, in grace, and with all kinds of good works accompanying it so that they can see your love in us. I pray all this in Jesus' name.